0: Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. What shapes the way we think about sex? Consent and power relations, gender justice and the state, pornography and freedom. Political philosophy professor Amiya Srinivasan refuses to turn away from the hard questions about society and sex. Hosted by Emma A. Jane, recorded live at the Sydney Opera House for All About Women
1: 2022. Hello, everyone. Welcome. My name is Emma A. Jane, and I'm an academic. Here in Sydney at UNSW. And I'm absolutely thrilled tonight to be facilitating this in conversation event with Amia Srinivasan. Amia, can you hear us? Are you there? There you are. Hello. Hello. Woo-hoo. Hi, Emma. Hi everyone. Um, Amia is Uh, social and political um, theorist at Oxford, where she holds, and I'm going to see if I get the pronunciation right, the Chichely professorship. Was that right, Amir? That's it. We talked about this before, and it rhymes with bitchily, yeah? Chichely. That's, That's what Philip Larkin used to say. Yeah, excellent. So um, Amir is the first woman, the first person of colour and the youngest person to ever hold this prestigious position. <laughs> Who would have guessed there'd be any sexism in the academy, huh? Um, Amir's book, The Right to Sex, is one of the most uh, intellectually, politically, and personally exciting books I have read in years. It It's kind of the opposite for me. It was the opposite of those filter bubbles on social media where you're in a group of people and everyone that you speak to feels exactly like you do and you agree on everything. I found it incredibly challenging and confronting. And personally, I feel like it's really reinvigorated my feminism. It contains six beautifully written essays that cover um, a, a range of topics. Um, including incels, the hysteria over false rape accusations, the class and racial politics of fuckability, and why we simply can't arrest our way out of gendered injustice. Um, As you may have gathered uh, from the what I've said so far, and the title of this evening's talk, we will be discussing um, some potentially sensitive um, topics like sex, pornography, and uh, violence. And so, if these are likely to be upsetting to you, I'll invite you to look after yourselves as you see fit, um, and leave the room if you need to. Um, Amir. Let's dive straight in with the title of your book and break all the rules um, and judge it solely on its cover and by its title, The Right to Sex. You leave the question a little bit open in the title. Does anyone have the right to sex? So
0: in one sense, yes, right? And I think that's actually fairly uncontroversial, right? So we all have the right to have sex with ourselves. For example, Uh, we all have uh, the right to have sex with consenting partners and I say this is obvious but of course many people's rights to have sex with consenting partners are very precarious so I'm thinking of queer people the world over Um, but there's another sense of the right to sex and this is the sense I mean in the title which is a fictitious right right Um, it's the, the felt entitlement to sex regardless of whether anyone actually wants to have sex with you. And that is part of the pathology of male entitlement, right? So this idea that men are owed sex, that it's somehow their due, I think is a central uh, tenet in patriarchal ideology, to put it in a kind of lofty term, but to put it in a more pedestrian term, just, you know, it 's something just woven into mainstream male centered culture, and we don 't have this right to sex in that sense
1: so I guess when it comes to um, the the this idea amongst um, let 's say the manis what 's known colloquially as the manosphere, the internet sort of um, rough co- coalescing slash coalition of of men 's groups online we 've seen the rise of Um, what's known as the incel movement. Um, Could you briefly um, explain for those people who are lucky enough not to have encountered the manosphere uh, what an incel is and why um, this particular group of people have interested you?
0: Mm. Yeah, so I think of the... Uh, Some people call it the incel movement. I don't think we should call it that. Um, I don't think of it as a political movement. I do think of it as a subcultural phenomenon, right? And it's actually fairly global and it's quite striking um, in its interrelations with more political things. So it's often the case that um, incel chat groups work as a kind of gateway into uh, forms of extreme right-wing ethno-nationalism and so on. But to stick with just the incel phenomenon for now the word incel itself is a shortening of the phrase involuntary celibate so in principle it's supposed to pick out any person and uh who wants to be in a relationship or wants to be having sex and uh isn't right pretty much because no one is interested in having sex with them or having a relationship with them. In practice, however, the word incel picks out a very specific type of aggrieved young, typically white man who thinks of himself as due in virtue of his whiteness, right? Um, and his maleness, do you a certain kind of attention, sexual attention from a certain kind of woman, right? So incels often think of themselves as just lonely or just sexually marginalized, but actually what they're furious about is the, what they see as the competition over high status females, right? Young, white, slim, and they often say chaste women.
1: And and these are the there women are, known as Stacys, right? Stacey's, exactly. Yeah, Chad's and Stacys. And right. Stacys are these sort of trophy, uh, okay. sort of Barbie type women. Yeah, they're the only wor- they're the
0: only women worth having in the incel worldview and they are all being hoarded by the chads who are like the alpha males but fascinatingly the chads don't come in for that much anger right all of the anger and in fact the violence the very disturbing violence that we've seen in the us and germany and elsewhere often tied with domestic terrorism um it is, is targeted at the women who they see as denying them their right. I think it's really important when thinking about the incel phenomenon though, to realize that although these men talk about themselves as being deprived of sex, it's not really sex that they're angry about. Um, because most of these men aren't interested in going and seeing sex workers. What they're angry about is their perceived place on a sexual hierarchy. They think of themselves as as people who should be higher but are actually, uh, they've actually been demoted and other people have been promoted above them on the sexual hierarchy.
1: Um, it's about There's a, co- a, a couple of things I wanted to pick up on there, but I just would also, from a housekeeping perspective, perspective, wanted to let the uh, backstage people know that my clock isn't running, so I may need to be nudged <laughs> when it's time to shut up, <laughs> because or otherwise... we can just keep on I'm, going. Thank you. I'm definitely not going to shut up. Um, so, a couple of things I wanted to circle back um, to there. I mean, and the first one was, you, you said predominantly white. Um, when we're talking about the sort of archetypal incel, but you know, one of one of the you know, most infamous um, incels was Elliot Rodger, of course, who was the guy who, in two thousand and fourteen, I think it was. Uh, Put that thesis-length manifesto onto um, the internet before killing, um, committing mass homicide, injuring many people, um, and I, I understand that he was—you know—he was that event was what prompted your first essay that later became this book. But that guy, Elliot Roger, was. Um, he had a sort of I think the, the expression you use in your book is a, um, a racialized self-loathing you know he wasn't uh, he wasn't a, a, a white a, a white guy um, how does that fit in to what you were saying earlier yeah so
0: Elliot Roger, um is uh, in a disturbing way extremely fascinating and he was the the I mean, his massacre in Isla Vista, California is the thing that brought the incel phenomenon to kind of global um, attention. So Elliot Roger was half white British and half Chinese Malaysian, and this produced in him a really fascinating and disturbing um, racialized understanding of the world. So on one hand, he blamed his not being purely white uh, for his sexu- what he saw as his sexual and romantic marginalization. So in general, he complained that uh, because he wasn't uh, purely white, because he um, was, on his own description, kind of effete, effeminate, bad at sports, socially awkward, all of these things, he said, made him unattractive uh, to women. At the same time, because he was a uh, part white, and also because he uh, came from a very wealthy family. Uh, and he, so he also claimed to be descendant from British aristocrats. He thought all of those things uh, grounded an entitlement to women's bodies. And he directed a huge amount of racialized loathing against um black men his age, who he saw as getting undue, unfair access to women's bodies, right? The women in this are never really subjects. They are just these objects um, to which one has or is denied access. So there's a very kind of complicated racial dynamic going on in Elliot Roger, which, which wasn't really attended to very much when uh, the episode happened. People um, in the mainstream media, including feminists, really focused on the male sexual entitlement, which was, of course, a central piece of the story. But they really just wanted to end by saying, you know, Elliot Rogers thought he was sexually entitled to women's bodies. This is a kind of extreme uh, version of what we find in kind of everyday culture, maybe not erupting in mass violence, but often erupting in smaller bits of toxic behavior and smaller bits of uh, violence, especially domestic violence. But no one was really touching this kind of more complex um very difficult question of, well, aren't people sometimes marginalized romantically and sexually because of things like their race or the fact that they are socially awkward. I don't think that's totally what was going on in Elliot Rogers case. I mean, I think it was very, (laughs) at the very least, very overdetermined, but actually all you need to do is look around at the world and how the romantic and sexual economy actually operates to see that things like race play a huge role in, the distribution of sexual status and romantic status.
1: I mean, sexual racism is a thing, right? Especially um, in the age of, of online dating, where you can, you know, literally not see people of certain sizes or colours or cultural backgrounds. And uh, one of the things or the many things I found interesting in your book was, you know, sort of saying that in the feminist commentary about Elliot Roger and the incel um, phenomenon, that was kind of overlooked. Yeah, I think it's it was overlooked um, because it's very hard to talk about well. You have
0: to, I think, dwell in a lot of complexity and ambiguity because on one hand, you want to insist that yeah, no one has the right to just have sex, right? No one has the right to just be wanted or desired. But at the same time, sometimes what's very ugly about our politics, like racism, classism, ableism, shape who is and isn't, considered sexually desirable, romantically desirable. And on the question of dating apps, I think dating apps have just made very visible something that long pre-existed them, right? I think uh, dating apps has allowed us to see the way in which people use race, for example, as a proxy for desirability. And it can kind of go both, both ways, right? So you get the fetishization of people of certain races, so for example, East Asian women or, or, um, among gay men, East Asian men, right, can sometimes be sexually fetishized, but that means they're going to be slaughtered in very particular sexual roles. They're only going to be desired, um, insofar as they're willing out to play, willing to play out a kind of white supremacist fantasy of, you know, the submissive, um, subservient East Asian person. And then you have the intense sexual marginalization and romantic marginalization, for example, of black women or other, or, or people of color. I mean, so some dating apps like Grindr have been trying to eradicate some of this, right? Um, but it used to be very common on Grindr to see people say things like, you know, no rice, no spice, which means no East Asian men, no, um, Uh, South Asian men. I don't think it's a particular problem in the gay male community. Um, I just think that gay men actually have been much more alert to this than straight people on the whole. I think gay men and gay people in general, queer people are used to thinking of sex as political.
1: And so they're more open to a kind of political critique of their own sexual behaviours. So, on, this, on the subject of, of sex being political, and, you know, you identify a dearth of political critique of sex in feminism, but also, uh, early on in your, your book, you, you have that anecdote about being at a dinner party, and with a famous male philosopher who you don't name although I'm very curious who who said you know he he never felt you know he lo- he loved sex because it was the one time he felt outside of politics um did first of all, did you say anything to him when he came out with that at the dinner party i did i, did, I said
0: I said. <laughs> And how, what would your wife say about that? Uh, I couldn't ask her because she wasn't actually invited to the dinner. Um, You might think these are related phenomena. Um, Yeah, so. I think there is a very strong cultural will not to think of sex as political. And in insisting on the politicality of sex, I'm not doing something new. I'm trying to return us to um, an older feminist tradition familiar to us from the late 1960s and 1970s that saw sex as really squarely within the realm of political critique, right? To say that the personal is political, um, Well, that implies that sex is political because what's more personal and what's more private or seemingly private than sex? But of course, it's very scary to politicize sex. It's people have, I think, good reason to worry that subjecting their sexual preferences, their sexual desires and practices to political scrutiny will invite um, a kind of authoritarianism, that can can be dangerous, but we've sort of swung so far in the other direction uh, towards thinking that well there's nothing to say, there's nothing to say about people's desires, all we have to say about sex is so long as it's consensual, it's fine and I and I think we come up against the limits of that way of thinking all of the time, and we see that especially with me too.
1: Yeah, so I will I will get back to me too, but just returning to what you were saying before, I mean. One of the things that I loved but also found unsettling at times was the fact that you went back to a lot of those feminist texts from the 1960s and 70s, and I'm thinking of Catherine McKinnon and um, Andrea Dworkin and texts that over my life I, I had read and, you know, I'd mocked. Quite, you know, I, I was surrounded, I guess, in when, when I was coming up through academia with, uh, I guess, pro-sex um, feminism, third-wave feminism. Those texts, to me, looked very dated, looked very joyless. What One of the things that really struck me about you sort of returning and reinvigorating those um, texts was that a lot of what they were saying now makes a lot of sense to me. And I wonder whether what we're seeing is, um, you know, so so often happens in politics, is that we, we had that moment in feminist history and then we've had the sort of third wave, um, you know, popular feminism, uh, sex-positive feminism, where Anything goes. No one wants to be shamed. You know, if you if that's what you're into, then whose business is it to, to judge Whereas as I take it you're you're actually asking people to Take a step back and and think again um, about whether for instance um, personal preferences when it comes to sex are really just, you know, innocuous and just personal as opposed to political. Sorry, that was a bit more of a statement than a question.
0: No, but it was a great statement. Um, <laughs> I mean, not to sound... Not to invoke a fully kind of Marxist theory of history, but I do think that these things are dialectical, which is to say that um, world views that fell out of favour because of good reasons, because they were also no longer keeping up with where we were politically can can become relevant once again. So in the late 60s and 70s, as you were alluding to, we had lots of feminists who wanted to subject sex and sexual practices desire to a great deal of political scrutiny and at the limit advocating for things like separatism from men, abstinence, political lesbianism, right? Lesbianism not grounded in some kind of authentic desire. and that was very alienating for lots of women. It was i mean I mean you can also think particularly of how white that is as an understanding of how you should go about sexual politics because think about a position of a black woman, right? What does it mean to ask a black woman to be to engage in a separatism away from black men? I mean, black men might be the enemy as it were. Uh, vis-a-vis sexual relations, but black men are comrades, right, when it comes to the struggle against racism. So though that kind of 1970s um, way of subjecting sex to political scrutiny, I think, was off-putting. And unsurprisingly, there was this kind of sex-positive backlash, which I think was really politically and intellectually important. And I loved what you said, because you described it as anything goes. Um, and I think it's important to remember that the first sex positivists, people like Ellen Willis, were not just interested in saying, oh, just you can keep on having the kind of sex you're having. What they were trying to do was really allow a thousand flowers to bloom sexually, right? They really wanted to encourage non-normative forms of sexuality, queer forms of sexuality. And that doesn't just mean between queer identifying people, it also means among, you know. Uh, self-identifying straight people, freeing people from a sense of there's one correct sexual script and that's what I have to conform to. And so I think that sex positive dream, that early sex positive dream is very powerful, but I think it has been watered down over the decades. Um, when the kind of mainstream sex positivity we often see now actually just tacitly reinforces the heteronormative script. It's really just about allow, it's not really transformative or liberatory anymore. And that's why I think the appeal of these kind of older 1970s styles feminism uh, is maybe being felt a bit again. It's because we're back in a place where heteronormativity kind of ironically uh, has been reinstated.
1: I mean, it also got co-opted by capitalism, you know, like, ad, like capitalism is amazingly um, elastic and capable of absorbing um, critique, um, offshoots, like, you know, early sex positivity, uh, sex positive feminism was quite radical. Um and now you know it's on t-shirts that are sold by huge multinationals um, and you know early um, sex positive feminism may you know may have been associated with non-normative um, sexuality and practices, whereas now you know perhaps partly you know riding on that momentum we have you know the internet has been swallowed by pornography mm-hmm. and for the most part it it's a quite rigid heteronormative pornography. Um, and you, you have a great chapter in the book called Talking to My Students About Porn, I think, and one of the things that you say is that you, you're expecting them to... Uh, you're a little unsure about, you know, how to start the conversation and that you might seem, you know, out of touch or whatever, and that, you know, I think you say that this is a generation for whom uploading um, a sex video is on a continuum with taking a selfie. Mm. Um, And yet your students said to you that they find a lot of mainstream porn troubling, too influential and damaging to their sex lives. Like, did that surprise you? It
0: it completely blew me away. I mean, the first time um, uh, I started the first after the very first class I did on um, these kind of classic feminist debates about pornography that played out in the 1970s and 1980s, I just had to sit down outside of the classroom on a bench and just have a coffee, and I was just thinking about what what just went on there. I was expecting them to think that these old that these that these that these critiques of pornography from the 1970s and 1980s were so old-fashioned, so outdated, that they just didn't apply to a contemporary moment when porn was totally ubiquitous and normalized, and um, pornographic consumption was totally normalized. And yet, these students were agreeing, uh, not with everything that they were reading, but with some of these critiques of these uh, this older generation of feminists, especially when it came to this idea of pornography as being really powerful ideologically, right? Not just something you simply watch. And that has no kind of ideological broader kind of effect on how you see the world, how you have sex, how you see women. And what was striking to me was that it was both women and men among my students who were saying this. A lot of them felt very much like they themselves were kind of pornographic products. I don't want to exaggerate this. I mean, lots of them were also interested in the ways in which they might be able to resist um, the force of pornography. And it's also very important to say, as you've already said, that what we're talking about implicitly here is mainstream porn, free pornography, which does follow a very narrow script. There's a huge amount of queer porn, feminist porn, but you have to pay for it. And it's not what young people tend to watch. Certainly when they are 10, 11, 12.
1: Um, It's an interesting, uh, and excuse me for a moment, but um, stage crew, the clock is just doing the most bizarre things. (laughs) Like, I look at it and it says there's three minutes to go, and now it says six minutes. um, So I really will need a nudge when it's time for me to take questions from the audience, um, because I had a huge chunky watch on and I took it off. So I have no idea how long we've been sitting um, here chatting. Time is a construct. Yeah, it is a construct. Um, so, yes, there's things happening down here. Oh, now it says four. Does that mean four minutes to go? It's seven, no, o'clock. It's seven. It's seven o'clock. Thank you so much. Five minutes to go. Before audience questions? To questions. Great. Sorry, um, humans. Um, <laughs> Next time, i remember to leave my huge, <laughs> ugly watch on so that I can keep track of the time myself. Uh, where were we? Po- oh, um, the difference... But yeah, mainstream porn... Ah, oh yes, mainstream porn being free porn. And, yes, there's this, um, in, you know, there's all these subcultural forms of porn, feminist porn, um, queer porn that, um, you know, cost money. And at one point in your book, you raised the fascinating prospect of, you know, would it be possible for perhaps a state, given the, you know, popularity and in pedagogical importance of porn, for the state to possibly (laughs) subsidise? Some of these types of porn, which I have to say was an ideal that appealed to me greatly... If only because, when you think about, in the US, the kind of outrage about socialised medicine, (laughs) um, you know, socialised pornography, um, seems to me to have a lot of potential. Um, I mean, were you just raising that idea as a thought experiment, or was it something that you think could seriously be useful?
0: I mean, I I don't see it happening anytime in the US, which just moves um, backwards on such questions every single day. Uh, I do think, though, that when you're thinking about something like public arts funding, right, um, you might expand that to include um, people who are, you know, small, independent directors and creators of pornography um, because you know, these are people, I mean, you know, to go back to the comment about capitalism, so much of what we're talking about with contemporary mainstream porn isn't effective capitalism, right? The reason mainstream porn is free, people used to pay for their porn, it's because these big porn sites involve, um, all of which are owned effectively by the same person and the same company, MindGeek, use pirated content Right. And the actual porn production houses, even the main ones, can't keep up with um, the request to take their uh, pirated content offline. Right. So we've got this massive clearinghouse that basically is exploiting um, fundamentally the people who work in porn And, and most porn actresses make very little money. Right, it's very hard to to uh, and now they make less money than ever because of the creation of these big uh, porn portals. So this is a this is a problem with capitalism. This is a kind of natural tendency of capitalism, and I do think it cries out for a very different kind of state intervention from the ones that people typically think about when they think about porn. When they think about porn, typically, or the state intervening, they think about laws against pornography, laws against the production of porn, the the creations spreading of porn, the buying or selling, I think that's all bad. But it is interesting to think about what does it mean to break down monopolies, right? Pornographic monopolies. What does it mean to um, enforce intellectual property rights? What does it mean to actually subsidize and encourage a democratized and flourishing porn industry? One that actually empowers workers, right? Like, how do you think about um, pornography, the, the problems of pornography as symptoms of advanced capitalism, rather than it being a a problem of, um, you know, bad people just putting bad things out there. So, yeah, I think it's one of the things that should be taken seriously.
1: Because, you know, one of the points that you make is that, um, you know, a lot of, you know, we we hear the statistics about the number of young people and children that access porn, and, um, from what we can gather, they're they're using it to learn how to do sex. You know, it's a training. It's being used for education, um, which, you know, it seems fair enough to, to want to get educated in this awesome thing that many of us like to do. Um, but... When you look at those, you know, very popular, um, free, mainstream um, porn outlets, the type of sex that we see in that, um, I don't think it's just sort of, ref, you know, reflecting what's out there. I think it's perhaps shaping. Um, I think you use the term, or maybe you quote someone that uses the term, you know, porn is world-making. Mm-hmm. It's, it's powerful. It is very
0: powerful. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, this is something that a lot of porn actresses themselves say. So Stoya, who's um, uh, written some wonderful op-eds in the New York Times, and does a lot of really interesting critical reflection on mainstream pornography, you know, had um, an op-ed in which she said, look, I effectively, the stuff I produce effectively substitutes for Um, a failing sex education, but this cannot serve as sex education because this is not what sex actually looks like. And this is not how people should actually go about trying to have sex, especially young people. But it is interesting that when you look at surveys and studies of young people is that precisely they very often, um, especially young men will say that their, their primary interest in it, you know, obviously they're getting off to it, but you know, they're really trying to understand how to do this thing. Right, this kind of terrifying, mysterious thing. Um, and it means that they are learning from a very conventional, frankly, quite boring, but also totally idealized, um, unrealistic script of, of sexual interaction. One that does not very often does not feature things like women's agency, women's pleasure, good communication, uh, imagination creativity none of those things are present in mainstream pornography and so it is worrying I think it's extremely worrying um, and not a reactionary thing to say to that that young people are, are looking to this stuff for for education
1: um, there are I, th- I want to circle back to that um, but because um, I don't want to uh, run out of time and I want to talk about your critique of um, carceral feminism. Um, It's not a... I knew... I hadn't heard the term. I knew... I was very familiar with the phenomenon, but I hadn't heard the term carceral feminism. Could you explain for us, first up, what it is, and then we'll look at why you think it's so problematic? Yeah, so it's a it's
0: a term that was coined by the sociologist Elizabeth Bernstein, but unlike some academic coinages, is really really useful um, in thinking about a real world phenomenon. So, carceral feminism picks out a kind of feminism with which actually most of us are very familiar. Many of us take as the only commonsensical form of feminism that looks to the coercive power of the state. Right, looks to prisons, police criminal law as the solution to women's problems and to the problems of sexual violence and gender justice more generally.
1: Why is it, so, I mean, it seems so commonsensical, you know. We've just, it's the week that we've had International Women's Day, there's been a lot of feminists um, on the media in Australia, and time and again, it's like we need, you know, more criminalization and more cages and more laws and better policing uh, it, it we hear it so much it's become a sort of received wisdom that th- this is the solution. Why is it problematic why, and why yeah, is it's it so yeah why Please, sorry yeah why is it why is it problematic
0: you're right, it's so um commonsensical, right? You have bad men doing bad things, uh, make it illegal to do those things, and uh, increase police powers to put those people in prison. So there's a lot to say here. I'm going to try and be succinct. Maybe I'll begin by pointing out that this actually wasn't the common sense in feminism in, in an earlier period of feminism. Um, so in the late 1960s, 1970s, uh, feminists in the US, in the UK, in Australia, but also uh, in the decolonizing, you know, global South, um, in in Europe, they recognized very deep and systematic problems for women, especially violence against women, but they didn't, they had very little trust in the idea that further empowering the state was, uh, and the state's coercive powers were going to actually make women better off. And actually, if you look, and, and that kind of, understanding that kind of um, anxiety about the state eroded once we get into the 1980s and 1990s, where feminists, especially Anglo-American feminists, um, start really embracing kind of state and prison power. And of course, mainstream politicians love this because politicians love having more police on the street and they love having more people in prisons. One reason this most mainstream politicians love that is because as long as you can present um, the problem as one of criminality, then you don't have to actually reckon with the very deep sources of crime, right? Um, I.e. you don't have to reckon with deep forms of socioeconomic inequality, right? Prisons are actually very cheap, Police are actually very cheap. It's much cheaper than having to think about how do we get full employment? How do we get rid of poverty? How do we get rid of, I mean, so why might those things matter for women? Well, first of all, most women globally are poor. Most poor people are women. Poverty is feminized. This is the most serious problem for women is, is poverty. Poverty and especially male unemployment are the, are the key factors that drive domestic violence. And domestic violence is the most predominant form of violence against women. To give you just one example of how this plays out, in the US you have mandatory arrest laws against men who perpetrate domestic violence, right? you think this would be a good thing. But what ends up happening is that women of color and poor women become subject to more domestic violence when their partners are arrested. Because what happens is that those partners come back from prison and engage in forms of retaliatory violence. And crucially, poor women can't leave the men who beat them because they don't have the money to do so. They don't have the money to be able to take their children away to forms of safety, right? So while something like mandatory arrest laws might work quite well for a wealthy woman, they actually don't serve the interests of poor women very well at all and often lead to a dropping off in domestic violence complaints, not because there are fewer complaints, but because women are worried about who's going to pay the bills when their uh, violent partners are in prison. So the deepest problem with carceral feminism is that it buys these kind of symbolic satisfactions of throwing violent men in prison or or having laws on the books that um, rule out violence, while at the same time making things no better, but often worse for the very worst off women. You can also think of, legislation criminal legislation against sex workers having a similar kind of function you know it gives you the satisfaction of knowing that no man is legally allowed to buy sex but of course as we know from sex workers makes their lives so much harder makes the lives of sex workers so much harder and then carceral feminism by always pointing to the police and prisons distracts us from what from the real reckoning that is due right the real reckoning with the ravages of capitalism which is Fundamentally, what makes the most women? um, It's fundamentally what makes up um, the driving forces of oppression of of uh, the worst off women. So that's in a kind of nutshell, but I'd be happy to talk about that more if anyone in the audience is interested.
1: Um, we, so if, if my clock can now be believed, um, we've got 14 minutes left and I really wanna um, give everyone in the audience an opportunity to ask questions. Um, and while I'm uh, letting you guys, is there a Slido, is this is a Slido code um, to ask, um, mere question, um, but just given that, that and I'm, conv- you know, I'm convinced by your, I was con- really convinced, I found your argument really unsettling and also really compelling. Um, and you ask a lot of questions in the book, like literally there's question after question after question, and you, s- I think, I suspect quite deliberately don't say, here's the answer, here's the way forward, um, but do you... I mean, are, are we talking about a revolution here? Like, because so many of the the things that we would normally reach for, like um, you know, legislative changes, uh, you know, police, prisons, education, representation, they're all lacking. I mean, what mm. is is what what's the answer? I mean. How easy is that for a final question? (laughs) I mean, in a sense, I'm talking
0: about a revolution, but by which I don't mean we have to just simply, you know, wait for a moment where we all collectively take to the streets. I think we can think about lots of um, smaller reforms that carry within them um, a picture of a revolutionary picture of a transformed world. So... What sort of things do you agitate for? Well, you can, you should agitate for certain forms of legislation. For example, heightened union protections, right? Um, better labor laws, um, forms of living living wage, ideally required democratic um, representation in corporations, right? All workers should have a say within corporations. UBI, universal basic income. There you go. If you want a solution, not a solution, total solution, but if you really want to improve the lot of, uh, Uh, victims of domestic violence, give them money so that they can leave with their children, right? That's great. Universal housing, um, universal childcare, 24-hour childcare. This was something that feminists started demanding in the 1970s and thought was going to be given to them overnight. They didn't even think of that as a transformative revolutionary demand. Um, You know, so there's a whole raft of pieces of, a whole raft of demands that I think, can be made and can actually be met and are more on the table in a way now than they've been historically, something like universal basic income, which hold the seed of something more utopian.
1: Thank you for that. Okay, th- this is a question uh, for, um, I, th- I won't say who it's from because I don't think we're keeping it anonymous. Do you feel any cultural pressure when talking about sex as an Indian woman? Could you please share more about how you came to research this as a professor?
0: I feel an anxiety that my grandmothers might always be watching. <laughs> I don't know if that's what the question asker was, um, uh, had, it had in mind. Um, you know, I come from a very culturally conservative background and a very culturally conservative um, community within India. And so I came to thinking about this um, through my engagement with feminism and feminist theory, which itself was a bit of a deviation from um, what I was doing before that. I, I'm, I'm trained as an analytic philosopher. I spend a lot of time thinking about the nature of knowledge and skepticism and free will and those kinds of questions, but I had a side interest in feminist theory. And then when I started teaching, I started teaching feminist theory alongside more conventional, traditional philosophical topics. Um, and I found myself wanting to write about it through the experience of teaching. But I do feel an anxiety um, as an Indian woman about, I mean, maybe one way of putting this is that there's a little bit of like prudishness in me, right? That I think I inherit culturally. And that it means that when I write about sex, I'm, I am wa- I always wanted to be very political and serious. Um, because I don't, because I have an anxiety. I think about it's it's being seen as sort of frivolous or or prurient. But it has been interesting to me watching the reception in India, even from my grandmother's, actually, um, how much of an appetite there is for for difficult forms of feminist conversation about about sex.
1: Thank you for that. Um, We have another question here. Is there anything we can do to help someone who we think might be going down the path of becoming an incel? Oh, that's an
0: excellent question. So there are lots of people who are specialists in forms of de-radicalization. And so um, I wouldn't want to offer my thoughts as kind of the cutting edge of expertise, but I would certainly I certainly think that broadly the project of de-radicalization or the slowing of radicalization um, is a really important one, especially in the age of YouTube and social media where so much of this takes place. I will say one thing that I think very strongly, which is that feminists have something to say to incels. And this goes back to what I had been saying earlier about how incels in some sense are very, very unhappy with the sexual hierarchy, right? They're very unhappy that sex is seen as um, this thing that is tied to social status, that if you're not having sex, then you're seen as a kind of a social pariah. Um, They're unhappy with the fact that sex is um, organized via a social hierarchy at all. But they don't go the full feminist route because fun, what they then end up complaining about is the way their particular role in that hierarchy. But it's not a million miles away from saying, from, from the feminist realization that, well, sex shouldn't be organized by a, a hierarchy at all. I think there's something quite analogous here with how one might be able to speak to <clears throat> you know, members of the tradi- so-called traditional white working class. Right. I'm thinking about a certain kind of Trump voter, for example, who feels a justified grievance at the way that late capitalism has produced stagnating wages, uh, gross inequality, uh, the erosion of good jobs and so on, but ends up targeting that anger and bitterness at usually racial minorities and women. What you need to do with those people is again, kind of redirect the anger and grievance at the right object, which is the hierarchy itself, right? Rather than just their place in it. So I think there's something, I think there is something not only that we can say to incels or, you know, people inclining that direction, but something specific that feminists can say.
1: Thank you for that. Um, We have two questions here about porn. The first one is, do you think porn can or ultimately be good for women? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, it can, I, I think certain forms of porn can be
0: good for certain women, absolutely. I think I, I'm very, I don't want to be a, I don't want to legislate what is and isn't good for particular people. The human psyche is just vastly complex. I mean, I think that even very mainstream porn can be salutary for certain women. Right. I mean, who know? For example, what if you're a woman who's watching mainstream porn, but what's what's going on for you is that you're identifying with the male figure in it? I mean, that might be doing some important kind of psychic work for you. It might even be emancipatory. So, uh, I think all things are are possible. But I will say that I register in the book a certain anxiety about like the logic of the screen and the way in which. The power of the visual image, whether we're talking about mainstream or independent pornography, um, might close down or weaken our kind of sexual imagination, uh, and I do, I do I do worry about that. I don't know how much we should worry about it, especially in the age of pornography. I don't think we're going we're going back from this, but I, I do worry about a kind of dependency that. We're all increasingly experiencing on the moving image when it comes to questions of sexual possibility and sexual arousal.
1: I love um, I love your call for more sexual imagination um, in the mm-hmm. book, and also your comment about the idea of not accepting our desires as fixed and um, you know naturalized and essentialist, but even using a kind of discipline to. Um, to question why we desire and who we desire um, and playing with looking for um, desire in surprising places. Um, mm. I, that's my fang- one of my fangirl moments there. I love that part of the book. One, one last question here. On the topic of porn, what age would you classify as too young to be watching? And how do you initiate a conversation with a young person considering watching it?
0: So I think these are good questions to be answered by the many people who work on precisely this, on precisely the question of sex education and and porn literacy. Um, Women who work in porn are also often extremely astute about thinking through these issues. I don't think I'm best placed. I I think it probably actually varies with individual people. You know, we make these kind of general rules, but children mature at varying kinds of rates. I would say, though, in general, that um, it's sort of never too early to be talking to children about sex, love, romance. And that doesn't mean all the gritty, nitty-gritty details, but it does mean maybe at the, you know, very, very young children, um, saying things like, yeah, families come in different shapes and sizes. Right. And, and how do we, and talking about kind of bodily autonomy integrity. And that's the foundation for conversations to come. I think if you're thinking about how to address the question of pornography or even sex with a child who's 12, it's kind of too late. I'm not really saying it's too late. You should still do it. But of course, I think we should be having, um, conversations that centre questions of relationship, family, desire, sex um, from the very beginning.
1: Um, Mia, thank you so, oh uh, there's still one more um, question, we've got one minute and 51 seconds. I'm struggling to understand, does this mean that carceral feminism is the kind of feminism that Grace Tame pushes and is that bad? So Grace Tame was our Australian of the Year last year, an amazing young woman who fought to um, overturn. She was raped by a school teacher for many years um, and she fought to overturn. Um, she took him to court, she won, but she was gagged from identifying herself and speaking about it. Um, but. She she str- she campaigns for legal reform, um, uh, but the question is, uh, I'm so sorry to the person that asked this question, but I think because it's so Australian in focus, it might be yeah, a. I can dip- try and say something to it. What was that? Sorry, I'll try. I'll try and, I'll try and okay, say something awesome. without knowing
0: the kind of d- particular details. The, the thing I want to say is that I'm not saying, and I don't think anyone should say that there's that there's no point in ever, or that individual women don't have the right, given the system we live under, to reach for the police or reach for stricter laws. I'm really interested, however, in what feminism as a political movement prioritizes as its strategies. Right. and what it, what it thinks of as the strategies that will actually um, improve the conditions for most women. I'm very skeptical that the idea of going after just a few individual men with um, uh, or putting an in, increased number of men in prisons, especially by the way, given that we know how racialized the prison system is, how much um, you know false accusation there is against especially men of color, um, when it comes to sexual violence, these cannot be our ultimate solutions. Um, And so what I would counsel is not allowing these things that feel very emotionally and symbolically satisfying to take up the whole of your feminism and distract from the real goal, which is the creation, the transformation of a genuinely materially more equal world, a world in which women are freed to have the space and time to actually create spaces that Are safer, that are more nourishing, uh, that are more liberated. That should be the end goal of feminism. That's the kind of broad answer.
1: Amir, thank you so much. I think uh, I'm now... My clock is now showing that we're in the negatives. Um... And I'm... (laughs) It's always great when time starts going backwards like that. Um, Please, uh, it's been an absolute joy um, to speak with you in your office at Oxford after your early morning bike ride in. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. Please join me in thanking Amir Shrinivasan.
0: Thank you so much, Emma. Thank you so much, everyone. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Watch this talk and others at All About Women 2022 on stream. The new streaming service from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching. Follow the Sydney Opera House on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.